There was a time not that long ago in this country's history where Blacks legally weren't allowed to basically have a normal kind of wealth transfer and generational situation. If you believe we can change the narrative, if you believe we can change our communities, if you believe we can change the outcomes, then we can change the world. I'm Rob Richardson. Welcome to Disruption Now. Welcome to Disruption Now. I'm your host and moderator, Rob Richardson. With me again, it's great to have Tunde Ungolana back, as well as Michael Dean. And they have now joined forces with the Axial Family Advisors. And it's just an honor to have them on. Uh, I think their combination, is, it makes a really pre- pretty large combination there for assets. Tunde, what are we looking at for management, uh, for assets under management? Uh, it depends what the market did today, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'd say probably in the realm between 325, 350 million, um, depending on the range of valuation, because that includes um, um, obviously assets in our management, the traditional advisory style. I'd say we, we probably have you know eight figures within annuity and a life insurance cash value type of stuff. And then um, we have clients uh, that have real estate portfolios and businesses that we also help them with their uh, with their management so i'd say all in you know you're looking at a number in that range yep so pretty big so you're going to get some good advice from some very knowledgeable brothers that i have as my advisor so i hope you guys enjoy what, what we're about to bring in the content i promise it won't bore you uh, but it will inspire you to get more into a long-term strategic growth mindset when it comes to your finances so thank you gentlemen for coming on thank you for having us really appreciate it you guys have both been on independently in your in your roles before you you were both a merger and a thing together. So congratulations on that. Uh, just walk me through how this ended up happening. If you want, like, how did you guys in, end up figuring out that it made sense to have this merger in order to be more impactful and just more efficient? We can start with Tunde and then go to Michael. Okay. No, thanks. And um You know, great question. I think that like many things for many people that this year has been unique. And so with the advent of COVID, you know, in March and the shutdowns, um, it forced, I think, both of us, Michael and I, to look at our individual businesses. At the time, we weren't yet merged together and and made the decision to bring forces together. And as you mentioned, we have already been on the show because at the time, it was when Michael was a client of ours. And we had done the show about Michael's entrepreneur journey, so on and so forth. So during that time, and I'll let Mike speak, obviously, to, 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 to what brought him at that point. But, you know, I, I'll speak for me in my journey. I've been an entrepreneur now for five years. Uh, I formed a business uh, in 2015. And so <clears throat> I think like a lot of people, I love the idea of being an entrepreneur and being on my own. Um, but I, I was very, uh, I, I looked at myself in the mirror after the first couple of years of having partners and things that that and, the, and they didn't work out and it's it's not to point a finger because as a leader of the organization i always hold the mirror up and say what could right. i have done better but i do want to get into work. that don't go too yeah. far into okay. that because i want to have and a so, more detailed so, conversation about what went wrong in the past okay so perfect and so and so what happens is i in the process of the business organically growing because in the last few years you know we, we brought in two new kind of junior advisors um, I have, you know, an administrative assistant. I have, you know, my wife's in the business. So, you know, the team started to grow. And then starting last year in 2019, I began discussions with another firm to actually buy them out, uh, a, a firm down here in Miami. And so, and that's gone pretty well and successful. So as that's that, that transition this year, what I found was 
I was starting to kind of run a business again. And I realized a lot about myself is what I'm saying about introspecting and learning who I was as a business person is, it's funny to say this, I founded the company, but I don't like running a business. And I had to be honest with myself about that and, and embrace the fact that I really am a technician. I, I love working with clients. I love, you know, getting in the weeds with clients, helping them solve their problems, protecting them, that whole thing. And um, I think it wasn't that difficult of a journey for me to, to come to that conclusion. I just had to look in the mirror. But I think a lot of us as entrepreneurs, I realize it's very difficult when you start a business and it's yours and it's your baby um, to to kind of give it up and to say, you know. Yeah, because mo- most, particularly most African-Americans, most people in general start this way, but it's, it's, it's certainly over represented in uh, African-Americans, they're solopreneurs, they're, it's been them, it's been their baby, and really figuring out how to really move and move from just where you have to do what you're saying. What I, what I hear you saying, Tunde, is that you were growing, the business got to a point, but it became where it, it sounded like it became harder to scale because you had to spend so much time running the business, you couldn't actually do the parts that you uh, not only enjoy the most, that that you're the best at. And kind of knowing yourself. So, Michael, what what kind of brought you there when you think about what attracted you to Tune Day? I think what's so important for people to understand is you need to build a team. Sometimes you need to get a co-founder. And you, and you both are, even though Tune Day founded it, you guys operate essentially now as co-founders. What do you think is most important for people to consider when it comes to co-found, de- de- determining who your co-founder is going to be? Uh, I, I generally see it fit into several categories. One of one of these several categories. One, this person maybe fills a specific niche that you don't. Uh, two, I heard people say cultural fit. Three, just the ability to be able to bring in business between those, or you might have something different. What do you think is most essential? At least, what was most essential for you when determining what would work best for you when joining forces with Tunde? Well, I think the first thing is was actually timing. And okay, so when interesting. Tune and I met back in 2010, and we had initial conversations about where we are now, but it was all about the right timing. And what I mean by that is that him and I both felt as though for us to be successful long term, there were some benchmarks and some personal achievement and accomplishments that we had to make, but then also to get to know each other. And so that was that took a 10 year time period. And like Tunde mentioned, I became my family and I became a, a client of Axial. We got to know each other on, on that end from a client perspective. And then over that 10 year time period of being friends, we really started to see how we complemented each other from a temperament perspective. Sure. Right? We had emotional buoyancy as well. But then from a skill set perspective, we really started to see how we can play off of each other. We come from a similar background, from a finance perspective. So we have that as the, as the basis and the foundational piece. But then also, it's kind of like a basketball team. With Tunnell and I always mention, you look at the Chicago Bulls with, with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. They, they, they had an amazing so who's legacy Scottie? together. So you get into that, that Kobe. You, you get into that Kobe and Shaq conversation. <laughs> right. And so, you know, honestly, when we look at each other's skill sets, we just match each other very well to where, like Tunde mentioned, he's the technician. He's, he's the guy that can go out and really not only build the business, but able to scale the business as well. Well, w- with understanding that, you also have to manage the day-to-day operational piece of the business as, as it's being built. And that's where my skill set comes into play quite 
easily because I feel very comfortable in, 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 in building and scaling and managing a business, making sure that all of the different silos are running at its highest capacity, making sure that everything is turnkey, making sure that we have the appropriate processes, procedures so that we could run analytics to see where the business is going, not only for the short term, but also for the macro as well. And so as Tuna and I just offer general conversations of getting to know each other, we was very clairvoyant in our conversations as well. And so we was always honest with each other. We lost together, even though we were in separate industries, but we also won together. And so when we started to revisit this conversation earlier this year, it was just honestly a continuation of what we've discussed and had conversations of back in 2010 to that point. It was just now the timing made sense. And we both felt as though we were ready to to merge and, and be successful for, for, for the foreseeable future. So, let, so let, let's go ahead and see the timing. When you, when, and what, what else is the most important? What I gathered from you and what I hear from many, co, uh, many founders who go on to get co-founders and build teams, even if it's not a co-founder, it's building your team. It, it's cultural fit. Like the, Absolutely. the guys fit. There's a cultural fit that you know you, that, that it fits into the organization and you, and, and, and you, and you've, and you've complimented each other. Right. You said you've been, you've gained his friendship over the years. You, you got to see him from a distance. You work with him as a client, but it is different. Sometimes friends don't work out when you work together. Tune day. I want to go to you. Like you've had experience with this because when you started uh, a while back, you partnered with some friends. They were friends, I think, uh, but things didn't turn out as you had hoped. And I don't know if you're still friends with those, those friends. Sometimes it's kind of like marriage. It ends up, <laughs> you, you go into it with ideals. And then, you know, if you end up breaking up, nobody talks anymore. <laughs> it's, probably, it's, probably, it's probably similar with running a business. But t- uh, tell us from your experience with that and how that's informed you to make a better decision and a better fit for you now. Uh, it's, it's a great question because I'm smiling because I'm really happy to say that it was an amicable divorce <laughs> when I when we broke up the first time, and you know, meaning the the, the original partners, and I and I actually say that with a with a seriousness because I had had business relationships that failed earlier, like in my early thirties and all that, and those are people I don't talk to anymore at all. And you know, after time and all that, you just realize, hey, you know what? No one won. It's sad. The relationship broke, and and and. It's probably never going to be rebuilt. Well, well, but, but but I want you to talk through the. I guess I want you to talk through the painful ones because it's the pain where we learn the most. Well, I think, and and that's what I'm saying. So the the this is non-axial business. This was not my okay. original partners in axial. I'm just talking about other business experiences in my life that that I, you know, I would say in in my way of explaining it is I ripped the bandaid off, and it wasn't pretty, and we don't talk anymore. And I was when it when I saw that it was going south with my original partners at axial. I was also very conscious about not ripping that bandaid off and wanting yeah. to try and maintain the relationships. And I, that's why I was smiling when you were asking that, because I have all of them um, pretty much are clients today and our friends today. And I'm very thankful for that. And I thank them and myself. I think it was all of us together, the collective temperament to get through it now. Well, well, let me let, let me back up because I want to uh-huh. break that down a little bit in, in, in two different ways. Yeah. One, I want to get to the, I guess, the non-axial thing and really ask you uh, a question like this. Let's, let's let's go back to your, if you could advise your younger self in that situation, you can go back. What advice would you give yourself? And then what might you ignore knowing the things that you know now? So I want you to think about that. 
That's and a good question. I actually, it's a great question because I probably, the, I don't think I'd ignore anything. Um, you know, looking back, the only thing I could say I would change now is a much more mature guy in my 40s. Um, I probably would have, would have tamed my emotional temperament. Um, but I would say I had great mentors at that time. And I remember one of my mentors, who I'm still close with today, he used to, he told me something um, that, um, and he's, a, he's an Israeli gentleman, um, and he told me something that he just said, Tunde, and I would go to him real upset, you know, damn it, you know, and throwing and going nuts, you know, like I said, emotional. And he would kind of stop my noise and he would say, Tunde, just keep a focus that everything you're doing today, ask yourself, how is it going to affect you five years from now? And I'll never forget that because what it did was it kind of stopped all my BS in my own head and my own, you know, looking at me and why I was wronged and all this stuff. And just kind of like, you know, he's right. Forget about all this stuff right now. What are, how are my actions going to play out five years from now? And that's where maybe to help answer the question about that original thing is when I thought about the guys that I was currently with at that time, that's what kind of helped me focus that this wasn't the right group for me. Five yeah. years from now, I got to be free. And, and so it helped me like point. really go forward. And, um, and that's why I say when it came to the, the axial partners at the beginning, I don't fault them. I fault myself. Um, and that's where, you know, some of this really ha- is a lesson in humility. If you really want to be honest, you know, falling on your sword, not, you're not trying to be the guy pointing the fingers and looking at every situation that, that maybe went wrong and saying, okay, what did I do in this situation that I, that could have made this better? Now, if you're honest and there's nothing else you could have done and it was the other person, then maybe that's life. But I'll give you an example. But even that, just on that point really quick, even if that person did X, Y, Z, it still was your decision to enter into a relationship with that person. So there is still lessons for you to learn. That's one. Two, and and I'll let you get back. uh, I think you made a really key point that I want to emphasize. Making yourself see the long term and just and not to get emotionally tied to what went wrong at that moment. I ask everybody, I ask this question often, rewind and think about what you were really upset and angry about a year ago. You probably don't remember. Yep. And you know, it's another interesting gem that I heard from just a wise old man once. I was probably in my twenties when I heard this. He was like, Tunde. Now you're the wise old man. Yeah, yeah exactly. He says, he says, Tunde, ask yourself, when's the last time you made a really good decision when you're in a heated emotional state? And again, I thought about it and I was like, wow, that makes sense. Of course, no, none yep. of us really ever make great decisions when we're all flustered and, and out of whack emotionally. So you're right, Rob, those little gems help us. And the one thing then, then I don't want to um, hog up too much time here, but to, to share the, the, the one lesson I learned why I don't fault the original partners of Axial and I fault myself and my joke and Michael laughing me at this. That's why he runs the company now is, um, <laughs> is um, I'm the genius that somehow left corporate America and brought my wife into this. So now I'm the guy that's like taking all the risk and I only own 33% of my own company. I was naive and I thought that if I give away this equity to other people, that they would then like perform to fill that equity space. And it would just be that with this big team, we would all go and make all this money together. And I just kind of learned through, you know, being naive and doing it and then seeing it not work, that that's not how you do it. Um, right, but, that, but that, I think, mean, challenge that. I mean, I guess if you found the right people in the right mindset, the right timing, maybe it did work. Well, no, well, here's what the way works. I would say it more so, um, because I don't know if that exists. What I would say is I would have been better off telling everybody and the, at that time, right, maybe saying, look, I'm going to have 90%. And, and the other thing, too, which I failed to mention is, 
100% of all those other people either had their own thriving business or their spouse had income or something. I mean, I'm the right. one taking all the risk with my own wife that we're in this together with nothing else. And I'm the one out with 33%. So, but that's my fault. That's what I'm saying. I'm not blaming yeah. them. I'm the one that offered that. But I learned that, you know what, maybe it would have been better if I said, look, me and my wife take 90%. Each of you get 2%, but you have a chance to earn up to 10 or 15 and squeeze me down. But here's the yep. performance metrics. And yeah. You've got six to 12 months. And that way, if it didn't work out, it didn't work out. And if it worked out, it worked out. But instead, yep. it was a little bit painful with a couple of them when I was exiting out because, you know, how do you offer somebody something and then, you know, kind of try and take it back? So yeah. that's why I say it, it's... it's So again, be careful. I, the, the lesson is be careful of offering equity and be sure you know whatever you're offering, that you have some measurables to the value of that and know what you're bringing to the situation and what others are going to bring. Michael... What is your what is your overall vision for Axial Family Advisors and like what's your why for doing this? And if you can really pull any lessons that you might have gone through that are helping you navigate this space right now. Absolutely. And so, you know, our overall vision for Axial Family Advisors is to be the one stop shop for families to be able to tap into a pool of resources to help and enhance their everyday needs. Those resources being either traditional financial planning services, um, wealth protection or building generational wealth, estate planning, any life um, style or luxury lifestyle needs that they may have on a day-to-day basis, um, any tax or short-term accounting needs, any philanthropic needs that they may have, they can tap into our wealth of, of providers and staff and, and resources to be able to get that done in a very consistent but trusting capacity, right? And so as you can see with the pandemic causing a lot of paradigm shifts in a lot of different industries, it's making families have to reach out to a plethora of different service providers to try to get things done and they're not interconnected. So you may have a financial advisor doing some long-term initiatives for that family, but they're not connected to the uh, the tax attorney. And the tax attorney may not be connected to the real estate attorney, or they may have had a death in the family. And as such, that that may have triggered some, some different silos to be able to start to unravel. And so with Axial Family Advisors, we have built a team that are, is able to handle all of those different needs, but also have that family be the key conduit to, to make all the decisions, but understand that we're bringing the best of the best to their table to en- en- enhance and insist in-, in all of those different needs that may have come together. And so um, that's always been my why, honestly, Rob, from, from my journey of being a professional athlete to being a certified financial planner to then transition into entrepreneur and now back into the finance world is to be able to be a, a someone that is a trusted entity. So my friends have always been able to trust me with not only advice, but also being able to come to, to me personally and know that I can assist them in, a, in any type of, of, of issues that they may have had in a lot of different areas. And so it's kind of weird when I was growing up and going through my personal journey, I didn't really know that I was that person until a bunch of people started to, to actually come to me in, in that capacity. And I kind of had my aha moment like, wow, okay. I must be doing something right because people who I look up to or people that's in my trusted circle is con- consistently coming to me 
for advice or coming to me to say, hey, did you have do you have a trusted real estate person or do you have a trusted you know, um, financial advisor outside of yourself when you wasn't in the business or anyone in, in, in a plethora of different industries, people would come to me for, for my little black book. And that kind of extrapolated out to the reasoning why I created with my co-founder, Ellis Hodge Privé Society, which then was always the plan to where we are now to plug that into a financial entity so that when families have lifestyle services needs that they can get those done in a very seamless capacity as well. No, I mean, that's a great point. Uh, moving on, because I want to talk about um, having the perspective of wealth planning and having a strategy for it, because that's what you kind of got to. You guys are my advisors, and, and I, I've become more and more uh, understanding of why it's so important to have a strategy. And and it's hard to do everything yourself. Like You can't be good at everything. It's kind of what we just talked about. And you need to have a strategy, particularly if you're building any type of wealth, which a lot of people are. And there's no real, you have to think about the short term. Well, what's the best way to take advantage of, uh, of your taxes in this moment? Then you got to think about the long term. What's the best way to plan for my family uh, if something should happen to me? And, you know, God rest his soul, talk, uh, Chadwick Bozeman, someone who was a hero. He was awesome. I love the stuff he did. And he was uh, noble in his pursuits. He knew his why. Uh, and he also knew he was dying for quite some time. and he's left a, a widow and a, and a, and a, and a kid because she's pregnant. Um, but did not leave actual will, didn't leave a trust. And I think it's an opportunity for a lesson that, you know, it, it would have behooved him because it's, it's unlikely he had a financial advisor because the financial advisor would have been hounding him for the last four years to get that done. I think we have to think about long-term, how do we protect what we built? Because the goal is it doesn't mean anything if we can't, uh, empower the people that come after us. So how do, how do we begin to change the narrative really as a culture around the concept of money, generational wealth? Like what is your approach as, as specifically talking to the black community? I go to e either one of you guys. Tune day go. Yeah. Okay. I was going to give it to Mike because I won't okay, shut up. Okay. Give it to Mike. Got yeah, Mike go. I won't shut up. So let's let Mike go first. <laughs> so I think the first thing and it's funny that you mentioned, you know, Chaswood, uh, Rob, is because, you know, he was just the latest example, right? And so when you think back to the 60s and, 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 and on, you know, a lot of our greats and legends has passed without having an estate plan in place. I'm not sure but if Prince had one. Did he have no one? No, Prince, Aretha Franklin, you know, John Singleton, you know, the list goes on and on of, of, of our many greats that unfortunately passed without having that infrastructure in place primarily because we've been on that hamster wheel throughout our whole life trying to just get, become wealthy, right? You know, you look at the generational gap between our race and others. And so we, we, we're not programmed as such to plan for after death because, you know, we, we're so programmed to try to take care of our family while we're here. And I think with that being said, and where we are now in 2020 and having achieved you know, financial stability in a lot of different households. It's time to really take the next step as a as a race to have that be in a, a, a pertinent part of the conversation as you're accumulating wealth to make sure that that wealth that has been accumulated is protected and, and, and is able to be transferred to your kids and your grandkids and so on and so forth. And I think that that starts with your financial advisor, your financial team, 
being able to have that conversation with you early on, even in your 20s, because as you build wealth in your 30s and 40s, that infrastructure will, st- will already be established. And then you just, you know, and um, you will um, you will actually begin to change it as you get older. So you look at someone like a, a John Singleton or a, a Michael Jackson, per se, right, or Kobe. Right. So Kobe, through his particular career, when he was 18, had a will drafted. But then as he got kids, him and Vanessa, the, the wills are always, always able to be revised and as such. And so you have to start early in planning for those different transfers of wealth. And the state planning is the key essential one, because if you are unfortunately. If you unfortunately pass prior to getting everything in order, then you put it in the hands of the courts, probate courts and so on and so forth. And it just becomes a much more messier situation on and top expensive of and expensive an expensive situation on top of the emotional distress that your family your money might. goes to lawyers, all the lawyers. Right. And so for us, that's one of the key things before we really get into the advisory piece from a financial standpoint. We make sure that all of our clients have had that conversation and that piece is in order. Yeah. And then beyond that, uh, Tunde, thinking about, obviously, thinking about death and making sure that you are planning for that, having those conversations on a regular basis and getting, I think, past this kind of cultural legacy where we don't really talk about that. Like, we don't, that's not something we should talk about. It is. Uh, That's very important, as Michael said, and we discussed. But I think it's also having a strategy for a growth mindset for your next 20 or 30 years and not just going into life like, okay, I made money. I'm going to continue to make this much money, like really having a growth mindset and a strategy around that and not having to discover that on your own. I think that's what you guys provide. Talk about how you try to develop the right approach and mindset for your clients. You know, great question. I think it reminds me as you're saying that the old quote that if you, if was it, if you don't plan, if you plan to fail, you, you, you're. People don't plan to fail. They fail to plan. There you go. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> um, so, so, um, and that's it, right? It's, it's, I think part of it is just your own, an individual psychology or the type that thinks long-term or they think in day to day. And so, um, a lot of things that you guys brought up are pretty much spot on. Um, one is uh, it makes me think, you know, Rob, that you're right. We promote especially families of a certain net worth, I would say, you know, anyone probably worth over two and a half million or so should probably have a, an annual family meeting, um, especially if, uh, depending on how the assets are, you know, liquid versus illiquid, so on and so forth. Um, and then I, I agree with you guys that, you know, part of it, especially when you're talking about African-American wealth, is is there's a lot of cultural legacy because, I, and this is what I explain um, to people sometimes is that you know, the Civil Rights Act was enacted in 1965. So you've got 55 years of legal integration in the United States for Black Americans. Um, but from a cultural standpoint, I think the last hill that we need to take is the hill of wealth transfer and of and of estate planning and kind of multi-generational wealth transfer, let me say that. And a lot of people don't know this history, um, meaning all Americans, white or Black. Um, you know, we know about things like redlining, and how the FHA, the Federal Housing Authority, um, um, excluded Blacks from many suburban communities. Um, but a lot of people don't know that up until about 1970, most Blacks weren't able to buy more than $10,000 of life insurance. So what I'm getting at is there was a time not that long ago in this country's history where 
Blacks legally weren't allowed to basically have a normal kind of wealth transfer and generational situation. And that explains a lot of where kind of the cultural side of our country is today. The, and not, the whole discomfort yeah, behind and, it. And, not, and not, not, let's not get into all that, but just the idea that what I tell a lot of people that I talk to that are black with some wealth is that, you know, most black people that are wealthy and that are under, let's say, 60 are most likely the first people ever in their family line to have any means and have any wealth. So what has happened in other communities and other cultures in terms of generations of sitting around a dinner table and talking about trusts and talking about what it is to invest in stocks and be an equity owner, that didn't happen for a long time because blacks were excluded from that and didn't have that knowledge and that ability to participate. So you're talking, it's only about a generation or two at most where this has been readily available to most of the community. And so what you find is, and I, and I joke with people too, asking, have you heard of the DuPonts? Have you heard of the Vanderbilts? Have you heard of the Rockefellers, the Bushes, the Kennedys? And people say, yeah. And I say, well, the only reason why we know of them is because somebody a hundred years ago decided to implement a lot of these things and their generational wealth stayed intact. So, and, and, and part of that journey is like you said, it's, it's about changing the mindset. Yeah. Um, because we still, I think as a culture based on the, you know, the history of our country has still have a mindset of scarcity. Like we're yep. not really participating in this system. And I think that's on us. That's not on whites or anyone else in this country. We got to start. That's on us to reject that tape and throw it out. But Correct. Yes. Like, like, you know, we are part of this country. We are Americans and we're in this system. And, you know, we got to get with the program here. And, 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 and can I gear the, I don't know where you're going, but you could finish yeah. after this. I, I definitely want you to address too, not just people that have made the wealth, one or two million, but there are people that are, you know, like myself who aren't poor, aren't rich, but are at this stage where they should be thinking about, strategizing and you and you guys definitely advise those type of clients too. I want you to talk, you guys can both talk about this and then and then I want to move on to talk about the opportunities in this moment. Talk about those that profile of a person who is let's say middle class, maybe upper middle class is starting to get to a point where they don't have a they don't necessarily have a ton of wealth, but if they do what they need to for the next 15 or 20 years, they'll be in good position. Yeah, talk, no, I, talk, talk about that person and what you guys do for them and what you just advise as a, as a general kind of approach. You don't need to give detailed advice, but a general approach to somebody that, that's in that kind of frame that I just described. I mean, obviously, giving advice like that is would be specific to the person and their goals. And right. we go through a whole system of, of really what I almost joke and say it's financial therapy. Um, a lot of times um, I'll be very intense in getting to know someone's psychological and emotional state even before I ask about their money. Um, because I've learned that I've you know, been self-taught. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a self-taught psychology kind of guy. I've never got, I don't have a PhD, but, you know, through all the reading and things I've done, um, you know, I've really taken it serious to learn about people's childhood. You know, it's funny. I'm helping someone who is um, a, a good acquaintance of mine. And um, he approached me recently. He's going through a divorce and, um, you know, he's in his early fifties and they've been together a long time. So he's got some assets and um, and he's also got some family wealth. Um, the family owns uh, 200 acres in, in Texas, Oklahoma on a ranch. So he's getting money from a trust. I mean, it's one of those complex things. And I said, I need to learn about your wife's kind of background, because then that'll really help me understand how we can help her have peace of mind. And not in a sinister way, but I just need to understand where she comes from. And he told me that she's so worried about a lack of control and what I drew out of him was that 
her dad was a gambler and, uh, you know, I don't know if anything else, but basically he squandered all of her college money when she was mm. a young kid and she had to work like her, like a dog, 60 hours a week and all that through college to pay for it. Oh, that makes, so that makes under, sense. So, so, so the reason I bring up just that example that just happened this week, you know, that conversation is fresh in my head is because that's what I was like, okay, that's the most important thing I got to learn right now because all the numbers don't matter. I got to learn how to help her come to the table and be, you know, and also help him in this journey. And that's when I joke with him and said, okay, I got to get my therapist hat on first. We'll talk about money on the next call. And so I think that's a big part of it is learning who you're working with. And then to, to, to answer the, the, the rest of the question about the middle-class type of person, I've seen magic and wonders work with people that just stay disciplined. I'm talking about just maxing out your 401k, getting the match and the profit sharing, I mean, you'd be amazed. You think about it. The right now, I think what are we at eighteen five or nine, nineteen thousand for an under fifty year old contribution? And then you have the six thousand dollar catch up, so it's twenty five for someone that's over fifty, and um, or, or twenty six, maybe it's seven thousand. But in any case, in ten years, that would be one hundred eighty thousand or two fifty for depending what age you're in. And then if you assume a little bit of market growth and the average of six to eight percent and a balanced portfolio type of thing historically, I mean, somebody and, and profit sharing and match on top of it. I mean, it's, it's not unrealistic that someone under 50 doing that for 10 years could have four or five hundred thousand in a well-performing market. So and that's also for people that might be in their late 30s, early 40s, and they feel like they haven't done a good job savings because they had other stuff going on in their life. Maybe they had some kids, maybe had that, they, you know, something happened in their life where they couldn't save. Um, you know, it's never too late. So I think there's often those type of people that we work with, I'll first start with, what do you have at your employer or in your disposal? You've got group life insurance, you've got, you know, your 401k, let's see what these tools that are already out there for you that can help protect your interests. And the other thing is I'm a big believer in life insurance, especially if you have a family, because it's one of the few ways, especially anyone under, let's say, 45 with some term insurance is one way you can change your family's life. I mean, you know, I got my first 20 year term policy. I was 32 and I had great health at the time. Um, and I got it for forty seven dollars a month, a million dollars. I don't I don't I don't see how any responsible father with wife and kids would not, especially at a young age like that would not look and say, let me make sure for 40 something dollars a month, if I just check out early by accident, um, my family's taken care of, the mortgage is paid. And sometimes I hear these jokes too, where guys will say, I don't want my wife, you know, my wife, some other guy's gonna spend that money and all that. <laughs> and I joke and I say to them, you know, the statistical thing in the United States is that most widows, the number one reason why they get remarried is money. So taking care, of, taking care of your wife and making sure she's flush when you're not here, probably it actually won't have her running out looking for somebody to help her with this journey with these children and these debts. You know, she'll be able to calm down and, 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 and not have to be, you know, looking for another partner. And hopefully have a little more faith in your wife. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm like, yeah, and let your wife move on too. Yeah. So we're going to die someday. So that's a, and if that, if that happens early. I'm sure my reverse question would be, so are you going to go single for the next 40 years? Like, anyway, that's just. I know you don't say like... that, but I was I want to get to Michael on, 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 on a question or two. Yeah, and I want to get to this kind of current moment. Uh, Michael, Tunde really points out the fact that you have to know the people you're working with and seek to learn and understand their mental state as kind of like a mental psychologist. I look at that as when you're talking to people, then 
it sounds like for them is to know their self-awareness to be able to, to, to be able to get better financial habits for yourself day to day. What do you advise clients in general to make, to have better financial habits so you can create wealth and not necessarily about the strategy, but what habits can we get into to make sure that we are more uh, financially secure for the long term? There's a couple of different ones, Rob. I think the first one is really getting a clear understanding of your financial PL, right? Your personal PL, not only short term, but profit and loss statement. I think people never will say it. Yep. And so <laughs> and so, you know, sitting down and, and be able to understand exactly what your, your burn rate is, right? Your spend rate monthly. So viewing yourself as I'm looking at view yourself as a business is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. From the beginning, no matter if you're you're making minimum wage to you're making you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a week, you know, you have to view yourself as a business. You have to sit down and you have to understand your personal P&L, right? What's going out, what's coming in, and then appropriate a a substantial game plan, meaning to be able to save at least 30% of your your net paycheck, right? To begin to start to plan for the future. Like Tunde mentioned, maxing out your 401ks, um, it's another component because it's, it's tax deferred and tax free per, per se. But then after you're able to put together a short term P&L, then begin to wrap around your long term plan, meaning starting to invest in stocks, start to invest into real estate, start to connect to your why. That's a big thing for individuals in your 20s. Right. You know, Everyone is creative in some way. You and I had extensive conversation about your why and, and how you've been able to tap into a lot of those different things as you progress through your entrepreneurial journey, right? And so save about 10% and put that away to connect to your why from a creative standpoint so, so that you can have so financial independence. So a couple things on that. I think you know, I want to make sure we emphasize the points here. Uh, make it automatic, the set aside the, I'm not at the 10% yet, but I'm about there, but set aside in something. Yep. Do not touch it. Yep. Make it, and I think this is, this is so key, make it automatic before anything else. Because if you don't, then it becomes, you see that money is there as spendable and then you end up spending it instead of investing. So do it on, just don't even allow yourself the option. Nope. Set aside the, whatever you can, if you can't, some people can't do 10%. If you can do 5%, yeah, do 5%. Whatever it is. If you can do 3%, do 3%, work your way up. But set aside something as an automatic that's one two when you talk about uh seeing yourself as a business i thought i i I have a business now and i've also i also have a main source of employment but i'm starting to get more and more in my side business more and more it's becoming the source a source a source source of employment the income all all by itself which is great starting to match the 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 main hustle i would tell people that what i've learned through this process if i can go back i realize how important it is to price things out and to know you know what you should be charging, how much time it's going to take you to do that, how much resources as ter- in terms of looking at yourself as a business, even if you don't have a business, what that's taught me is before you make that investment, how much time did you have to take to spend that? Absolutely. And really and, and putting something in, you can put there's all types of technology you can put. There's a something true bill that allows you to look at all your bills and it'll tell you, well, you're spending a lot compared to other people. That's an app. It's free. You can yep. put in there. There are, there are resources you can do. Those are things that I've needed to do because I'm a person that I'm all I'll just be trying to do stuff. So I need to put systems in place Absolutely. automatically to make myself look at this. And so like there are things there, are, there are so, so many, uh, there's so much availability of knowledge and technology that you can use to automate some of this process for you. But you certainly want to have a financial advisor as you go through the strategy of this. But I, I just tell people it's so important 
to put systems in place because most people are not disciplined to do what they're supposed to do after the fact. You got to do it before. And people, yeah. people have a policy of thinking that when I get money, then I'll go back and do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the habits have already been created, right? And you ain't like, going to get money with that mentality. You know, it's, it's yeah, like, right? Um, like everyone thinks that, oh, don't worry about it, man. When, when, when I get real money, I'll go back and do it. You've already created a habit. You've already created how your method of thinking is going to be in regards to money, right? And then, and then so whatever habits have been created prior to, you're just going to roll those over and it's just going to be more expensive habits. And so that's one of the key things that we tell our clients when they you know, initially come on board is that we're going to create a game plan. So as we start to grow your portfolio, not only from a short-term perspective, because we also introduce our clients to a lot of different ways of, of diversity and diversification with funds. But as we're bringing in pockets of wealth, you already have these buckets that's already been substantiated and you understand why they're there. And so then therefore, when you get to the point when you want to retire, you already know that the game plan has not only been implemented, but it's been worked on for years and years. And so you feel comfortable and then also educating your family about those buckets as well so that your kids could understand all the different silos that's that make okay. up your, your, your family's corporation, right? And so yep. it's not just getting them from, from a structural perspective, but it's allowing your kids and your wife to grow up within that infrastructure and having those conversations so that they understand why they're there and how to leverage them. God forbid if anything had to happen to you. Yeah, because that could happen. I mean, you got to say it's going to happen. It doesn't mean somebody's going to die at some point. You don't know when, but we prepare we live life as if we could die tomorrow and you just maximize your opportunities and you think about what you need to do if you if you weren't there for your family. That's the mindset we got. We actually live more if we can get to the mindset that this is this is something that's that that is not only not guaranteed, you're going to die. Today you're closer to death than you were yesterday. So you can have the and it, it just it's, it's a fact of life that doesn't it shouldn't make you sad. It should just make you have a clarity of focus that you need to make sure you're doing everything you can to maximize this moment and protect your family for the long run. Uh, I want to talk about the moment. Can I jump in real quick? Go ahead. ahead. I I want to get to the moment in terms of where we're going and this opportunity with post the election, the the COVID moment, where you think generally there may be opportunities for folks. But go. let's finish that point, then we'll go to that and wrap up. Okay. Um, No, real quick, I was going to joke with with a smile and say, um, as much as I do this for a living, it's funny when you talk about apps, I recommend, I mean, I don't want to sit here endorsing somebody and we're not doing a commercial, but we use the app Acorns. And it's funny, as much as I think I'm disciplined, that little thing helped me. I was so amazed. My wife did it where we round up, I guess, whenever you got a do- you know, some change, it rounds it up to the next dollar and just moves it to Acorns. And in like six months, we had like 1500 bucks. <laughs> it just felt good. Like, all right, this is free wow. money. Like that came out of nowhere. And I just realized... Wow, you know, it also reminded me how much money is probably wasted when you're looking at that's just sense. And, you know, in that period of time, you already got that kind of money. I'm just thinking, wow, that's interesting. So I recommend, like you said, that as much as people can automate their lives probably helps. And then the other thing I was going to mention just to finish up hearing you guys talk is I think some of the things I've encountered from clients or prospects, unfortunately, is a lack of trust. And I can appreciate, yeah. that. you know, not everybody in our business <laughs> does it right, knows what they're doing or is, or has the best intention of the client. Um, or people that just had like, like my, the person I told you who's going through divorce, what happened with his wife's childhood, they might have a bad experience from their past as sure. it relates to trusting people 
with with conversations about money. So I'd say the most detrimental thing I've seen in my practice is the people that call everybody and ask questions. You know, and they'll call me because they saw something on TV or read in a book, and then they're calling the next advisor. And but they don't really stop and work with one person because they don't trust anybody. And yeah. I've seen a hundred percent of the time, inevitably, those guys, you know, women, you know, people that do that, they don't get anywhere because they spend all this time trying to vet all these ideas and it never. So I, the one thing I would commend to anyone watching this who's, who's taken anything from what we're saying is find one source or group of people that you really trust and, you know, make them earn your trust. Trust shouldn't be free. But once you've figured out that that's the group to trust, start listening and taking the advice because it is a partnership. Yeah, it and is. like that's you said, Rob, we don't all know everything. It's like me and my accountant. As much as I do this for a living, when my accountant starts telling me certain things, I shut up. And I yeah. was like, okay, man. And I might say, hey, but I heard this on what I read this the other day. And I'll let him explain to me why either it's a right move for me or not a right move. But I still trust that he's the one that's the expert in this area, even though it's taxes and financial planning are pretty close together, but I still defer to his expertise. Right. And the other thing I was going to say is- All of us are smarter than any one of us. Correct. Yeah, and and absolutely. there's resources like FINRA.org, F-I-N-R-A.org. FINRA is, our, is the national regulatory body with anyone that has a securities license. So again, to the audience, if someone's telling you they're a financial advisor, if you can't find them on FINRA.org, you got to ask them what kind of financial advisor they are because- they don't have securities laws and they're not licensed to give a certain type of advice, at least. Um, it doesn't mean that they're a crook. It just means you need an explanation and it should be something you're comfortable with. And also because on FINRA, um, you can see any formal complaints. They have to be logged. You can see things like financial compromises. So if someone's had to file a bankruptcy, they've been sued, they've been fined by the industry. All that is transparent. That's a beautiful thing about our regulations that we have is they are built for to protect the consumer. So um, I welcome anyone to look at mine because I'm not afraid to share it. But anybody that should that's telling you they're a financial advisor and you're thinking of working them, do that due diligence because this is your money and you want to make sure that because I've even people we've thought to bring into the firm and I've checked on their FINRA and I see stuff this long going back to the 90s. I'm like, whoa, okay. Yeah, trust. <laughs> I'm but not playing with this fire. <laughs> So that was it. I just wanted to throw that two cents. No, I think that, that's key. It's, it's, it's a great point. I'm glad you brought it up because it's a question I meant to get out. How do you know the right advisor to pick? You went through that. I w the only thing I would add is the cultural fit. Does that person, they can be qualified. You, they, that's, that's the bottom line. They got to be qualified. They obviously can't, shouldn't have a bunch of complaints about them. But then is that person, is that entity a cultural fit for you? Do they have empathy for you, what you're trying to do? Or do they just try to talk big words over you and just try to say, you need to do that and listen to me? Because uh, it is a partnership. And so it ha has to be a good cultural fit because this person, this entity is a part of your personal business, long-term career, the most important business you have, which is building the financial assets uh, for your for the generations after you and for, and for your current family. You know, a crowd that, it, that we hear that the most from is the professional athletes. Which part? It, meaning like when you really talk to, especially some of the guys that we work with that have retired and they tell you about when they were in the leagues, whatever it was, NFL or NBA. And, um, you know, that's some of the open, you know, they open up to me sometimes and say, you know, Tunde, the thing I appreciate is that you listen to me and you explain things. Right. Because they either say like they, the, the old advisor always wanted to talk about the game and then yeah. didn't really look at them serious for money. 
or they would talk a thousand miles an hour. I remember one one of um, talk a thousand folks, miles an hour with jargon that they don't. Well, understand. it was funny because one of the um, about themselves. one of the retired NFL players that Michael actually brought into the firm recently had told me it was cute because he goes. Tunde, the guy I used to, I had worked with in the past, he sounded like that last five seconds of the pharmaceutical commercial, where I'm trying to <laughs> rattle everything out real fast. Like, this is going to kill you, and this is going to cause you to, you know, have diarrhea. Blah 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 blah. And he goes, "That's the way you would talk about my portfolio." And I'd be like, "Yo, dude, slow down." <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, and but I think that's uh, that's a I see it on the on the on the uh, on the tech end too. Yeah, there's this like lack of empathy. Yeah, or they want to show you how smart they are. And exactly, and, they're like going about a cultural to- fit, you know. Exactly. Because listen, if I look at it this way, uh, I don't need to be an expert at it, but if you can't explain the basics to me, one or two things are going on. Either you're not being transparent or you don't know it as well as you say you do, because if you can't explain it to me, you don't know it. That's how, that's how I feel about anybody in any field. You either don't know how to communicate, which means you don't fully know it in a way or, or, or you're trying to, uh, or, or you're just trying to not be transparent and I guess there, there's a third. You could just be a jerk and just want to just believe how smart you are. But so I guess we can put that in there too. That's the narcissism one. You just yeah. want to talk about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll, as we kind of wrap up here, this is uh, this is a really volatile time. I guess we feel like we always say that. I've said that several times on this show. In 2020, you just don't know what the hell is going to happen. Uh, so we have an election that just got done. Uh, the market has done well, pretty well, generally well. It's gone back and forth, but what are you advising people in this? What do you see as the opportunities? Again, Brank, I know you we're not giving full blank advice, but I'm just saying if you are if you're just advising people about how to go about 2021 and planning, uh, what do you see as the opportunities for this moment given the really just uncertainty of where we're going through? I mean, I, I think I can say that pretty comfortably. If things seem pretty uncertain uh, in terms of what's going to happen. I, I believe the mar- market is still going to continue to grow over time, but I think in the short term, we just don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'll reserve, you know, obviously stock picking or saying my thoughts about the stock market or things like that for this interview. Um, but I think um, and I'll defer to Mike here. I, I think there's a lot of inter- opportunities, just like we found opportunity together. You know, there's a lot of, you know, I hate to say it this way because it sounds sinister, but through chaos, there's opportunity. And I don't mean that in a sinister way. I just mean that when things are in flux a bit, sometimes there's some arbitrage and you can just catch something. And I feel like, like <laughs> through no intent of this, and Mike, I'm smiling that, you know, that was this, what happened is through the, through the chaos of this year, you know, we got fortunate as a business and had the opportunity to bring a highly qualified leader on board like Michael. And I think it took, like we talked about at the beginning of this, it's both of us, um, you know, I also, as the owner and founder of the company, had to have the, the humility and say, you know what, this is the moment. You know, things are in flux, we're growing, and here's a, somebody that right now is is telling me he's open. In a year, he's not going to be open because he's a talented person that will have something else going on if I don't capture this, um, you know, it, 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 it quickly. And so I think there's, you know, that's our example, but there, I'm sure there's other examples in the small business community. There's examples in the stock market um, of, of companies that still haven't rebounded the way that, let's say, the Netflix, Apple and, and Teslas and all that have that are still high quality companies that will probably be around for the long term. Um, and so I think that that's the way I would say it is that there's, you know, in a positive way, opportunity and chaos. 
And, um, you know, this is an opportunity for a lot of us to reinvent ourselves. So. And one of the things that I'll add, Rob, is that, you know, when we sit down with our clients, especially during this time period, and we've been extremely successful, even though obviously the financial sectors have been, you know, in, in, in flux throughout the year, you know, our clients have been able to really diversify. So the stock market has been what it is, you know, consistently throughout the year. But, you know, we've really been able to sit down with our clients. And for those who wanted to get into real estate, obviously, we've been able to get with trusted advisors and allow them to start to invest with the, the interest rates being as low, you know, historically as it's been in not only in the residential res, um, properties, but also in being able to get into some other um, investment opportunities such as REITs and so on and so forth. If entrepreneurship has been a key conversation within our client base to where due to the fact that it's been, you know, it's a lot of disruption in different industries, it's allowed our clients to have a seat at the table and a more tangible perspective, but also because of Zoom and so on and so forth, these busy colleagues or what have you has now been able to sit down and teach a little bit more to our clients and be able to become much more intrinsic in, in that relationship. So our clients have not only been able to invest in some favorable investments, but also learn in a way that probably wasn't available to them if it wasn't a pandemic going on and everyone's out there, you know, in their homes for, for 18 to 24 hours a day. Um, and then lastly, being able to diversify from a stock market perspective to where we have a lot of our clients that has taken on day trading and, and learning um, options trading and so on and so forth to actually enhance their long-term acumens of stocks. And so, you know, overall, our client's portfolio has actually grown through this time period, not only from a short-term perspective, but also from a long-term perspective because we've, we've presented them with opportunities for them to connect to their why, but also diversify as well. Yeah, that's great. Well, tuning a lot of Michael Dean, uh, we look forward to having you on a regular basis to, to really talk to folks about how they can have a growth mindset and, and to explore opportunities. And they can obviously learn more about uh, Axial Family Advisors. We'll put all of the links in, in the podcast. But thank you, gentlemen, for coming on. Appreciate you having me. Thank you. Oh, always a pleasure. Thank you again, Rob. Really appreciate it.